Hello, everybody. Well, welcome to Jubilee Fellowship Church. We want to take this opportunity to welcome all of our campuses, everybody listening online, uh, those that will listen in post-production, and just our whole JFC family. It's great to be here with you guys sharing God's Word together. Uh, there's a kind of a turning point in every uh, pastor's life, and that is when he comes up to the podium such as this and has to bring his readers with him and try to make it look totally normal. Like it's just, this is totally part of the show, people. It's part of the show. Nothing to see. Nothing to see up here. But anyway, so we'll see if I can pull it off. Pastor John does it with such sophistication. But anyway, I'm trying to follow in his footsteps. Uh, but it is truly great to be with you and, uh, and share God's word together. I believe that um, this topic and this series called Unorthodox is so timely right now for what we find ourselves in the midst of as a society and as a culture. Would you agree? Um, there's just, we are in times where that which uh, was clearly wrong 50 years ago has been called right now and things that were clearly defensible and upright, you know, 20 years ago now are considered evil and bad. And, and so things are just turning upside down and changing all around us. And I think all of us are kind of asking ourselves the question, how do I, how do I navigate this? What is this world going to look like? You know, if you have kids, you're kind of thinking, what kind of a world are my kids going to grow up in? Or, or if you don't, you're kind of thinking, man, do I even want to have kids? What, you know, what's, what does this look like? How does God want us to navigate this world? And I believe that God wants to speak right to that very topic and with a life-giving word for every one of us this weekend. So uh, I want to jump right into that. Um, I think uh, God wants us to become agents of influence. God wants every single one of us to be an agent of influence in our society. And I believe that as we look at uh, characters in the Word of God, we can see great examples and inspiration uh, as to that. But one of my favorites is Daniel. I love that. It's, my parents named me Daniel Joel. Uh, I'm not going to give you my social security number, but that's a bit of you know, information for you if you want to Google me or anything. But anyway, Daniel's my first name. And, uh, but they felt that that was kind of something that the Lord put on their hearts to name me. But ever since I've known that, I've really looked at Daniel and how he carried himself and, and so many of the things that he did and the attitudes that he adopted and the, the way he conducted himself and, and seeing just how God used him so powerfully. And I believe that there's some really cool things that we can learn from him uh, that are going to make us effective as agents of influence in our society, in our culture, just as much as he was in his. Um, and so we're just going to look at just four quick things. Obviously, there's many, many that you could unpack in the book of Daniel. I'm really going to focus on uh, chapter one for the most part. But, uh, but I want to say this before we even look at that. Uh, would, would you agree with me? Most of us love to influence uh, from a position of power. Yeah? I mean, I'm like, Lord, I'll influence this nation for you. Just make me, let me be president for like a day. You know what I'm saying? And I'm going to change a few things. There's going to be a new sheriff in town. And, you know, righteousness is finally going to come to the United States of America, right? Uh, or maybe it's at your job. Or maybe it's, you know, uh, at your school or whatever place you might find yourself, you know. Uh, maybe it's in your family, in your marriage. You know, like, Lord, if, you know, maybe you're a wife. Like, Lord, if you let me, you know, just really wear the pants for one week, I could just turn this family around for you. Uh, give me the power to do it. But oftentimes, and, and it's fun to do that, right? I don't know if you've been to a home game like at uh, uh, Sports Authority Field uh, or whatnot when you're like, you know how the, the defense has the ball and everybody just gets really loud. And I'm literally on my feet like, like doing this kind of thing. Like it's a total thigh and calf workout because I'm literally sweating and the metal stands are just like rumbling and shaking. and It's just so loud. It's just something exciting about playing a home game, right? We're all in agreement. Well, not all, but like a few weirdos out there with a different, you know, jersey or whatever. But for the most part, we're like, yeah, go Bronco, 
goes and we're, you know, yelling for the home team and, and, and we're all in agreement and we all believe the same thing. We want the same thing. There's great power in that unity. And I think we all love to influence from kind of that place, right? But oftentimes what I've found is that God will actually not only allow us to uh, influence from a place of maybe weakness or vulnerability, sometimes he actually causes that. Sometimes he actually channels us to a place where we have no choice but to influence bottom up instead of top down. And that's exactly what happened to Daniel. I want to read Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And uh, it says this, I think they'll pull it up on the screen. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord, listen to this phrasing, and the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God, small g, pagan God, okay, carried articles of the real God, the one true God, to the temple of his God in Babylon and put in the treasure house of his God. What? Time out. I thought God was our defender. I thought he was supposed to fight the battle for us. I thought he was supposed to, you know, fight our battles and, and defend us always and put us on top, not at the bottom, right? The head, not the tail. Yes, he does do that many times in our lives. But I believe that his purposes are paramount, even more than our comfort. Do you know that? And so oftentimes God will do whatever it takes to fulfill his purposes and his mission, regardless of our comfort. And when we truly buy into that, things make a lot more sense. That's what happened here. It says God literally delivered the king of Judah in Jerusalem, God's people, to Nebuchadnezzar and his army, this pagan country with their pagan gods. That's exactly what happened. Why did God do that? I think there's two reasons. I put them down in your notes. I believe that one is that pressure can teach us a better way to influence our culture. Sometimes the pressure of playing away, so to speak, not having the home field advantage, can force us or cause us to learn a better way to influence our culture. And that way is favor. And the second bullet says this, this is the most effective way to change a heart. You see, I believe that we can dictate certain things and achieve uh, behavioral modification and change, right? If we want to say, hey, everybody at this business is going to stop at noon and pray over our meal and shout amen really loud and put a smile on your face and like it. Okay, well, if I'm the boss, I guess I could probably do that. But that's not going to necessarily change the heart of people, is it? God wants hearts that are changed. He wants to reveal himself to the heart. And oftentimes the best way to do that is not through power top down, but it's through influence and favor that opens a heart to him. And then it can truly be changed from the inside out. And here's the deal. Um, we see God doing this kind of at a macro level throughout history, right? In the Old Testament, we see God's people, the Israelites, kind of forgetting what God's mission was to reveal himself to all the nations of the earth, to have them know his goodness and his love and his blessing, and ultimately to worship him. And then fast forward to the New Testament, the church is established. All of a sudden, you know, yay, we know God. We know we're born again, all this kind of stuff. But then the church kind of begins to forget its purpose too. And so then all of a sudden, what does God do? He allows a series of kingdoms to come in. So the Romans were in power, right, for the first 400 years. All of a sudden, the barbarians come and attack. And guess what they do? Take a bunch of captives. And guess who's in those captives? A bunch of Christians, right? All of a sudden, those Christians are interspersed as slaves, as servants, whatever, among the barbarians. Guess what they're doing? They're praying over their meal. They're sharing the love of Jesus. They're telling, all of a sudden, there's this huge revival that takes place among the barbarians where the conquerors become conquered 
by the love of God. See how God is brilliant like that? So 400 years past four, all of a sudden the Vikings are there. Barbarians now are like, you know, loving God for the most part. A lot of them are, you know, Christians and so forth. The Vikings now is kind of the new frontier. They come, they attack. They pillage and, you know, rape and do whatever they do. But guess who they take with them? A bunch of believers. Guess what they have to do? Learn to influence through favor, not through power, because they're the low ones in the society. They don't have the luxury of dictating or mandating things. They have to just be who they are in a very pagan culture. Once again, it happens. The power of God, the kingdom of God expands greatly. Move forward to 400 years later, the Muslims. There's the Crusades. Obviously, mission's gone wrong. But anyway, you know, don't try, don't try that. You know, if you love somebody and want them to know the love of Jesus, don't like lob those like fiery balls over the walls. Just doesn't work very well. But anyway, the point being, God allowed his people to be on the weak side, on the vulnerable side, and put us in a place where we could then uh, show the love of God to society through favor. And God will do that in our lives as well. We know from Jeremiah chapter 31, I'm not going to read it, but even in the Old Testament, it was prophesied that God wants to write his law on our hearts, right? He wasn't interested in just changing policy. God wants to change people first. And then when people change, typically policy begins to change, right? Oftentimes, I think as a church, we forget that. We're like, man, let's change this policy. Yes, that's good if a policy changes for the better, but God doesn't want us to skip that step of changing people and changing hearts so that then policy can change, but ultimately, more importantly, so that his kingdom can be established. So here's uh, what I want to get into. I believe that um, uh, Daniel did four things to build a platform for influence. He did four things to build a platform for favor and influence in his life. And I wanted to look at those because I believe if we can begin to adopt those and, and embrace those, God will use us in 2015 in great ways, just like he used Daniel. The first one is this. Be excellent. Be excellent. Somebody tell your neighbor, be excellent. Now, for those of you 40 and over, you have no excuse. You've heard this ever since your youth because Bill and Ted told us what? Be excellent to each other. Right now, okay, all the young people are, you know, in Castle Rock and Lakewood are like, what? Well, anyway, don't worry about it. You didn't miss anything. Just a little shout out to my 80s people. Uh, but anyway, the point of that is be excellent. God is actually calling us in a very serious way to be excellent. What does that word mean? It actually means this. It actually means surpassing, extraordinary, or exceeding, or exceedingly. And here's what it says in Daniel 6, verse 3, speaking of Daniel. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, who were kind of like regional governors, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. This is farther on in the story of Daniel, but it was King Darius. And that's when the guys began, began to get jealous of him. And the whole thing where they convinced the king to make a decree where nobody could pray to anybody else but the king for 30 days. Daniel stuck to his guns and stayed true to himself and his God and prayed and ended up, right, going to the lion's den. God delivered him. But here's the deal. He had an excellent spirit. He made a decision to pursue excellence in his life, to not settle for mediocrity, but to stand out and to do whatever he was doing with his whole heart. Colossians 3.23 says exactly that. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, not as unto man, but as unto the Lord. Right? So God is saying, I'm looking for a generation of people that are determined to be excellent, to stand out, 
to run farther and jump higher and learn better and love more deeply than those who surround them. Why? Not for their own glory, not to establish a name for themselves, but to honor me in the midst of their culture. You see, when we are excellent, people are attracted to that. When we make a decision to be excellent, the world stops and listens. Here's how I know that. Because even in the church, I know it works the other way around. When the world is excellent, we stop and listen, right? Anybody go see a movie that might have like Tom Cruise in it or I don't know, Cameron Diaz or I don't know, somebody like that. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. But if you do, you're, you're doing that. You might not agree with everything they stand for, but you're going, they're really good at doing this. And then you see kind of one of those cheesy Bible movies on, hey, everybody. <laughs> and you're like, oh, Lord, I rebuke that spirit of Southern accent, you know. <laughs> I support Christian movies. But I'm just saying, it, right, it works that way. When something is excellent, music, we might listen to music and go, man, well, I, you know, I just, I don't really... Any of your kids like, I don't really listen to those words, but I just, I really like the music. But what happens is excellence, I'm not defending those things, but I'm just saying excellence in any field causes us to stop and pay attention. It gives that person, that artist, that athlete, that politician, that, that business person, that parent, whatever it might be, that friend, it gives a platform for influencing us. And that's the very same thing that works the other way around. When we are excellent, the world stops and listens. How many times has that happened where, you know, on American Idol or on some show, all of a sudden, somebody has finally opened their mouth and done something and been able to sing or do something, and it's like, we're like, oh my gosh, is this really happening? Is this really, is this live television right now? And they're, and they're just going for it, preaching the gospel, singing about Jesus. Why? Because their excellence has built a platform for influence. In what area is God calling you to take a step towards excellence? C.S. Lewis, in his book, God on the Dock, said this, we don't need Christians to write a bunch of little books about Christianity. We need Christians to write a bunch of little books about every topic with their Christian mindset filling those books. We need them to be the best scientists, the best astronomers, the best botanists, the best at culinary arts, the best at poetry, the best at literature, because then we're going to influence our culture when we truly have that spirit of excellence and we truly stand out. Can we hear God's call? Here's something I found this week. I, I, literally a couple days ago, I looked on Facebook and I found uh, Gene Simmons and I always you know, stop and listen. I'm just kidding. I normally don't. But he happened to be talking about Tim Tebow and he's talking about arena football and the Los Angeles team and he's defending Tim Tebow. Now this is Gene Simmons, lead singer of Kiss. Like, you know, we worship the devil, Kiss kind of thing. And, and he's talking about, man, Tim Tebow, why does everybody rip on him? So he is a Christian, big deal. So he wants to serve Jesus as his Lord. What's wrong with that? I'm like, what? Is this photoshopped? What is going on? Is this a joke that the church media team put together? But I don't believe it is, but I believe this, because when someone is excellent, it opens doors of influence to the most unlikely people, and people are changed. Let's follow that example of Daniel and be excellent. What about this? Number two, learn to relate to your culture. Learn to relate to your culture. I want to read uh, just briefly from uh, Daniel uh, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. It says this. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. 
Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them, listen to this, the language and literature of the Babylonians. It goes on to say a little bit later in that passage, they were enrolling in a three-year school, a three-year period of time when they were going to be indoctrinated, so to speak, and just, just sub submerged in the culture and the language and the protocol of the Babylonians. Daniel understood that this was an opportunity to learn to relate to his new culture. He had been yanked from his hometown, yanked from his country, yanked from his people, and established in this pagan country with this pagan king who was like impaling, impaling people on spears and, you know, on the weekends and stuff like that. But he was, saw an opportunity to be an influencer for the Lord. And so he took the time to do exactly that, to learn the language and literature of the Babylonians. I believe that if we took that to nowadays, would we say this, what is the language and literature of our culture, right? Start where we are. What is the language and literature of America in 2015? What is the language and culture of the people that you're surrounded with? It's a good question to ask because if we don't understand that, probably our influence will be very limited. Many, many years ago, my parents, uh, when they were, now my dad is with the Lord now, my mom is, I think, 83, uh, but many, many years ago in the late 40s, early 50s, they felt a call from God to go to Cuba and be missionaries. And so one of the first things that they did was begin to learn the language. And wow, you gotta respect them for that because I'm telling you what, Cubans speak a type of Spanish that is the fastest Spanish of any country. I'm not even kidding you. I was born and raised in Spain. I'm a native speaker. I didn't even speak English until I was seven years old. And when I hear Cubans talking, I'm like, I yeah, yeah, I understood that word, that one, yeah. Because they're like, oye, pero chico, ¿qué más de la I mean, they speak so fast. They, they jumble together like five or six words in, in one syllable. It's amazing how they do it. It's a gift from God. But they literally knew, wow, we're going to have to learn that. We're going to have to learn that language if we're going to communicate the love that God has put in our hearts for these people, if we're going to influence these people for Christ. And so they did that. But here's the funny thing. Sometimes in the church, we don't understand the very same principle, that we too are called to be missionaries. Maybe it's right here in our own neighborhood, in our own school, in our own workplace, but we don't take any time to think, I've got to learn the language. I've got to learn the literature. I've got to learn how to communicate, how to relate to my culture. Two words that are important, culture and protocol. I'm going to read a quick definition of culture. It's this, a people's way of life. They're designed for living, their way of coping with their biological, physical, and social environment. It consists of learned patterned assumptions, worldview, concepts and behavior, plus the resulting artifacts, material culture. Modern-day artifact, the iPhone, for example, right? Back in the day, it was probably a clay pot. But anyway, you get the idea, right? How we, how we relate with life, how we relate with our surroundings, how we establish priorities, how we, how we derive pleasure, what we do to have a good time. All those things are part of our culture. And God is saying, hey, I want you to learn the culture that you're in. It doesn't mean we have to imitate everything about that culture, but we need to be aware of it and to understand it so we can relate with it, right? Somebody has said there's three words with culture that we need to learn. One is uh, reject, one is receive, and one is redeem, right? There's some things in culture that we just flat out go, that's against God's word, period. So we reject it. Good, we should reject it. Other things are like, wow, that's a wonderful thing. That's a great tradition. Hey, being out on the lawn, listening to some music on a Thursday night, that's a nice thing to be doing. You know, whatever, whatever it might be. So we can receive that and enjoy that as a gift from God. 
But many things are kind of in this huge sort of area where we need to redeem them. We need to ask wisdom from the Lord. How can, what is in here that is made after your image? And how can I pull that out and use that in the culture to show that God is communicating and speaking to these people in the very way that they can understand, right? Jesus came to be exactly that, God in the flesh. If God just wanted to like broadcast, hey, here's my way, Jesus, you know, John 3.16, look it up. If you don't get it, you're going to hell. He could have put that like on a billboard or, you know, written it across the sky. But he wanted us to, to, to he wanted people to be reached in our culture in a way we can understand, in a way we can relate to. And he's calling us to do that. What about this? Uh, the other uh, word is protocol. And protocol is this, the accepted or established code of procedure or behavior in any group, organization, or situation. The established code of procedure or behavior in any group uh, or organization or situation. I remember when I uh, married my wife almost 24 years ago. Uh, we got engaged in Spain, came back to the States, went to college, you know, th uh, three years later, uh, anyway, we, 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 I began to get to know a lot of her family members, and some of her family is from North Platte, Nebraska. And uh, I went there, and they weren't so much um, affectionate people, per se. Let's just say that. And I was like fresh off the boat from Spain, where we hug and we kiss, you know, on the cheeks, and, you know, we're just, so I'm like, hey, hey, I'm a hugger, bring it in, you know. And they're just all looking at me like, who is this guy? And where did she find him? You know, I wasn't applying the understanding of protocol and culture. Now, they got used to me, and I tried to tone it down a little bit later. So, you know, we all love each other and get along great now. But here's the deal. You know, I was, I was coming at something really blind in terms of, hey, what are their protocols? What are they used to? How do they greet one another? How do they, hang, you know, relate with each other at a family reunion? I was just kind of, bulldozer DJ. <laughs> Here I am, you know. But uh, thankfully, nobody got hurt, and uh, like I said, they grew to accept me. But God is wanting us to understand that protocol and, and that culture. Daniel did that in chapter 2, verse 14, that the king had had a dream, Nebuchadnezzar, and, but he didn't remember what the dream was. And he wanted to remember what the dream was and know the interpretation. So he called his wise men and his, you know, astrologers, astronomers, all the wise people and all that, counselors, and he said, hey, guys, here's the deal. You need to tell me my dream. And the interpretation. They're like, okay, tell us the dream. We'll tell you the interpretation. He's like, no, no, you don't get me. Tell me what I dreamed and the interpretation. They're like, okay, tell us what you dreamed and we'll tell you the interpretation. He's like, you're stalling. He's like, I'm going to kill every single one of you because you're just stalling. And he literally said, okay, you know what? All of he decreed a death sentence on every single one of them because obviously they were like, king, no country or no king in any other country has ever requested from his servants that they actually tell him what he dreamed. And then, you know, what it meant. And he's like, that's it. I don't care. I'm Nebuchadnezzar. I'm the king of the world. It's good to be king. You're all going to die. But here's what it says in chapter 2, verse 14. It says that the commander of the guard came, and when he got to where Daniel was and his friends, it says Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He was using protocol. He was using everything he had learned about culture, about respect, about honor, about engaging with his culture. And he was able to speak to this guy. You know what this guy did? He went back to King Nebuchadnezzar, who, remember, had just issued this decree, like, don't come back here till they're all dead. And he's like, oh, uh, your majesty, you know, whatever, you know, the protocol was. Um, Daniel says he thinks he can, you know, tell you the dream and the interpretation. 
So Daniel followed up with a visit himself to Nebuchadnezzar, bought himself some time, God spoke to him, and he told the king what the dream was, what it meant, saved the lives of every single one of those wise men in the kingdom. But here's the deal. He used wisdom and tact. He understood protocol. Is there an area of our lives where God is saying, hey, I wanna use you, but you're gonna have to learn something about protocol, about the way you approach your friend, about the way you approach that person at work, right? There's, there's all kinds of protocols, you know, employee, employer, friend protocols, husband, wife protocol, right? Whatever it might be. Uh, you know, people at the gym, there's a certain protocol. If you're yakking somebody's ear off when they're trying to do their cardio, you know, I mean, understanding protocol is a way of respecting someone else and letting God open the door of their heart to where then we're being respectful, but we're being, the, the message is being welcomed in their heart. It'll be much more effective. Let's do that. Let's copy Daniel and learn to relate with our culture. The third thing he did, and these two um, are going to be brief. The third thing he did is he started here. He started right where he was, and he started small. In the first chapter, I'm not going to look it up, but you can look it up. The verses are listed there. King Nebuchadnezzar had issued this decree saying, hey, all these young men from all these different countries that are going to be trained to be you know, in my court are going to get food and wine from my table, and that's what I want them to eat. And so he had issued that decree. And then there was a guy named Ashpenaz who had been put in charge of all these guys, and he was the enforcer, right? So he was like, okay, this is what the king wants, and so everybody's going to get, this is the diet that you need to eat. But Daniel, of course, came from Israel and from the Hebrews, and, and it was against their ceremonial law to eat a lot of these foods. And some of them had been sacrificed to idols and whatnot, so he said, I can't do this. So he went to Ashpenaz and said, please, I, I don't want to do this. Is there a way that I could get away from, from having to do this? And Ashpenaz is like, the king will literally have my head if you guys look worse than the other guys. And he'll know what happened, and he will kill me. So he was afraid. He didn't say, okay, do it. He just was like, sorry. Well, then you know what Daniel did? He didn't get all grumpy. He didn't get all bent out of shape, saying, well, the king issued this unfair law. Where are you, God? Or even Ashpenaz, one layer down in authority, he doesn't see things my way. How come he's not listening to, to reason? How come, God, you haven't given me influence? You know what Daniel did? He went to the next guy down on the totem pole. It was the guy who had been put in charge of them. It was just literally the assistant that was in charge. And he said, hey, why don't you test us for 10 days and just give us vegetables and water and see how we look. And he went with, again, wisdom intact. And that man allowed him to test the Lord for 10 days. And after 10 days, it says they looked better than all the other young men. And so they were able to be put on a diet that honored the Lord. He wasn't too big for his britches. He wasn't too big to influence the little guy. He just started right where he was to whomever would listen. And I would ask you, who's in your life? Who's God put right around you? It's okay to say, God, we want to influence our nation for you. Okay, but will you influence the person you work out with at the gym? Or the lady that you jog with, with that cool, like, stroller with independent suspension, you know, and you're like, <laughs> you know, really cool, right? Are you okay to just influence somebody smaller? Because think about the impact that that had on that assistant. He probably, when Daniel went on to be promoted to be the second in the empire under all these different, he actually served under eight different kings over a period of 70 years. But when Daniel got on to be promoted, can you imagine that guy going, I was the first, I, I said yes to him when he asked me to test him because he knew his God was going to honor him. And how that man's life must have been changed. Start here and start small. The last one is this, be true to yourself and to God. In Daniel 1 verse 8, it says this, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested the prince of the eunuchs 
that he might not defile himself. That's the story that I've just explained. But here's what I want to point out. Daniel purposed in his heart early on that he belonged to the Lord. He purposed in his heart who his identity was going to be founded upon and what he was really all about. So even in the midst of trying to learn his culture and trying to relate with people around him and even learning and being excellent and standing out in his field, right, which we can do as well in any area of our lives, right? I know some of you that are amazing parents that are exemplary. Other people, neighbors and friends are looking at you like, wow, there's something different about the way that woman loves her kids and trains them and teaches them. What is that? They're intrigued. They're attracted. Some of you were here for a marriage conference this weekend. You're being excellent in your marriage. God's going to use that to attract other people to you. But whatever that might mean, right? Whether being excellent, we're learning to engage our culture, maybe we're even being humble and, and influencing whoever we can, starting small. The anchor of it all is that we purpose in our hearts not to defile ourselves, but that we belong to the Lord. That the purpose of all those other things that we're doing is to bring honor and glory to God, to influence a generation for Him. I believe that when we do that, God will be able to use us in the way that He used Daniel. I believe that people will be, their hearts will be softened towards us. Favor will begin to be opened in our lives and we'll be able to deposit seeds that literally change people. You know what happened through Daniel's ministry? If you look and read through the book of Daniel, several of the different kings that Daniel served under, almost every one, made some sort of declaration like this. The God of Daniel, that guy, he's the one true God. That God is the one that we all need to be worshiping. That God is the God that really comes through when we need him. That God is a revealer of mysteries. That God is a giver of guidance. That God sets up kings and tears them down. That God has true power and true authority. Wow. Talk about something that Daniel would have never been able to do using top-down power, but yet he was able to do as a vulnerable servant in a foreign kingdom, much the way we probably feel in this world where we look unorthodox, we look like the outsiders, we look like, oh, you're one of those people that, what do you believe about this and about that? But God was able to use him to literally transform the hearts of kings and rulers of empires and millions upon millions of people who were impacted because of that. Are you desiring that God use you in some small way like that? I'll tell you what I do. I believe that God is stirring the hearts of his church and saying, I want a church that is committed to me that has purposed in its heart to be holy, to be sold out for me, to be willing to draw that line in the sand when the time comes. But that is also not just going to be like, well, I'll just give my life, I guess, because, you know, that wouldn't have brought that much glory to God if he had just said the first week in, you know, the new camp, like, yeah, we're Jews. We don't do any of this kind of stuff. So I guess you can go ahead and kill us. Okay. Done. Right? But think about how God was able to use him for great glory for himself because he chose to be excellent because he was willing to go through that learning process of learning to relate to his culture, because he humbled himself and influenced small and near whoever was around him. God received much glory. There's a man who was uh, born in northern China back in 1902, and his name was uh, Eric, and he was born to Scottish parents. And he uh, grew up there until he was five and then moved, his parents uh, moved him and his older brother back to England where they went to an, uh, uh, an intern school, <clears throat> a boarding school. 
And uh, he began to go through, you know, middle school, high school, or the equivalent, and ended up at Oxford College. And he was uh, athletic, and he was a fast runner. And it was just something he loved to do and he enjoyed doing. And it kind of developed a reputation, began to, to break some records at the various schools. He became known as the fastest runner in England. And uh, so, long story short, he got on the Olympic team in 1924 in the Olympics in Paris. And so he, along with several other young men, were on their way. And, and actually, just shortly before, a, a few months before, he got word that the 100-meter sprint and the 220-meter sprint, which were his best events and the events that he had broken records in, were going to be held on a Sunday. And he made the decision in his heart, hey, I want to honor my God. Now, can you imagine? You're on the Olympic team, and you've broken records. You're the favorite to win. But he said, you know what? I'm not going to run on a Sunday. So I guess I'm going to give up that heat and that race to somebody else. I'm going to run the 400-meter, which takes place a different day of the week. And he did that. And when he was lining up on the blocks for the 400-meter race, which is very different than a 100-meter sprint, the masseur, the tech guy from the United States team, walked over to him and gave him a little piece of paper. And on it was written the words from 1 Samuel 2, verse 30, I believe it is, that says, I will honor those who honor me. And he went on to run that race, and he won the gold medal, he established a new world record, and he honored God in the process. His name was Eric Little, and the movie Chariots of Fire was written about his story. But the cool part of it is that that's not where it all ended, but after he continued to race and set a few more records and won a few more trophies, he ended up going back to China where his parents had been missionaries all their lives. And he got married, and he began to minister to the people there in very poor areas, and he ended up, when Japan invaded China, around the Second World War, he ended up put in a concentration camp or in an intern camp where they kept all of the foreigners in that area. And there was horrible conditions. There was starvation. There was horrible sanitary conditions. Uh, very much suffering. But he poured out his life for the people there. He continued to organize sports events. People around him said of him that he would be seen, you know, slouched over a chess table with a young man, just loving the people that God had called him to love and running his race. Here's what someone said of him. Often in an evening, I would see him bent over a checksboard or a model boat or directing some sort of square dance, absorbed, weary, and interested, pouring himself into this, into this effort to capture the imagination of these penned-up youths. He was overflowing with good humor and love for life and with enthusiasm and charm. It is rare indeed that a person has the good fortune to meet a saint, but he came as close to it as anyone I have ever known. Those words were written by Langdon Gilby, another intern at that camp. You see, Eric Little understood that the race that God had called him to run wasn't simply a physical race to win a gold medal, but it was a race in this life to influence culture around him, to truly love people, to truly engage with his culture, to truly be excellent and stand out and go for the prize in his field. And I believe that God is calling us today as a church to do those same things that Daniel did, that Eric Little did, to say, will you be an influencer of culture? Will you be an agent of change? Will you say, God, what area, what arena have you placed me in? What, what areas, am I a parent? How can I be excellent in that? 
Am I a business person? Is there an idea, a creative solution? What, how can I be excellent in that? Right? Am I a student? How can I be excellent with that? Am I a friend to someone? How can I be an excellent friend? Whatever area in life you've placed me in God, help me to be excellent for you and with you so that it might truly reveal your glory. Or maybe you're here and you're saying, man, you know, God's speaking to me about learning culture. Maybe there's something where you felt like, man, every time that I try to influence somebody for the Lord, they get offended, they get bent out of shape, I seem to just say too much. Maybe God is saying, hey, I want to teach you. If you'll just make yourself a student, I will help you learn the language, the literature, the culture, the protocol, so that I can make you much, much more effective. As we prepare to close at all of our campuses, I just want to pray a prayer that would echo a heart that would say, God, use us in this generation. You see, Daniel is in the presence of the Lord. He's not here anymore. But God is looking at you and he's looking at me, saying, hey, how are you going to live your life? How are you going to run your race? Are you going to allow me to fill you with my spirit and make you be an influencer of people? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word that calls to us to partner with you in what you're doing. God, to partner with you in, as Jesus did not just stay in heaven and shout down some commands and some verses from the Bible down to earth, but he came and became flesh so that we were able to behold his glory, so that we were able to see what a person with, with flesh and bones looks like who brings the very presence of God. God, you're looking for us to partner with you and to be Jesus's right here in our place that you have planted us, Lord, and to the ends of the earth. God, our heart today is that you would fill us with the Holy Spirit to do exactly that. Lord, let our mind be humbled with your word. God, I pray that our hearts would be desiring to be influencers because life and death is on the balance for people. It's not some light matter, but God, it's important. It's for eternity that we be able to influence people and to point them to you. God, every one of us has opportunities every day, every week. But God, our prayers that you would allow us to recognize those, that God, we would be praying for our eyes to be open, and that God, when those times and those moments come, in a conversation, in a business deal, in a conversation with our children, in a moment of correction or discipline, whatever it might be, but that, God, we would be able to influence hearts for you so that many, many people would know you and worship you. God, we pray that you would do all this in us by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.